Welcome to Obsessed Show, a podcast that is designed to inspire, featuring some of the most creative people in the world. I'm your host, Josh Miles. Hey guys, just a quick note to say this episode was recorded pre-COVID-19, so if there's anything that seems really out of place as you're listening back, that is why. So as you're staying home and listening to Obsessed Show, please stay safe and healthy. Let's talk about today's episode. Today on Obsessed Show, I'm chatting with principal of Toki, Eric Tolki. If you notice the difference between those two pronunciations, it's because Eric was wise enough early in creating his agency to create the phonetic pronunciation of his last name, Tolki when he created his agency, Toki. He brings over 30 years of real-world experience in brand strategy and design of complex projects. I know Eric from the architecture, engineering, and construction world in which we used to compete regularly, and they do some amazing work. I'm excited to be sitting here across the table with him today, which is a little unique for me because I'm used to doing most of these uh, remotely, but we are here uh, last second, had a change of venue and moved from... Uh, the Speakeasy, which is a really cool space in Broad Ripple that had some repairs going on today. So we are in Indianapolis at the Willow Marketing Studio. Thanks to our friends at Willow for letting us hang out here today. Um, Eric has graced the pages of Graphis, the Type Directors Club, Print Magazine, How Magazine, Brand New, and many others. Eric is a mainstay in the architecture branding world and a big member of the St. Louis design community. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Eric Tolke. Okay, kids, all the way from St. Louis, I'm chatting with him live in Indianapolis. I've got Eric Tolke. Eric, welcome to Obsessed Show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here, sir. Um, So we spent a good chunk of my career uh, when I was in the branding and agency world competing for branding projects, but it's cool to have you across the table here to pick your brain. Me too, and it's friendly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. This is is always good. Um, So I want to learn more about Toki, your agency, but, um, and we talked a little bit about this over breakfast today. So we're going to, we're going to share the rest of this story with our, with our listeners. I want to hear more about your origin story and share that uh, with the listeners of Obsessed Show. Um, I'm from uh, a little city on the other side of the river from St. Louis, which is Granite City, Illinois. And Granite City is this uh, steel town. So that's where all the big mills are. So if you're from New York City, it's like Newark. Um, <laughs> and it has a... Uh, a wonderful reputation as a place that, you know, produces big, strong guys that go into the steel mill and, you know, shovel slag all day. I am not one of those big, strong guys. <laughs> I'm a little nerdy guy. So uh, the little nerdy guys go into engineering. That's what they're tracked into. If you're smart in Granite City and you're a male, they say, oh, you'll be a chemical engineer and go work in the mill. Yeah. So um, fortunately, I got a great education in engineering and all those things in high school. Um, 1977, I uh, had the opportunity to go to Harvard Summer School, and there were two things on the agenda that um, I could take, one of which, this remember, this is the summer of Star Wars, that Star Wars came out, and I got, and I saw on the uh, curriculum that you could pick from was a, uh, a science fiction special effects class. Mm. And my second choice was architecture. (laughs) And it turned out that the science fiction class was sold out. So I had to go to the architecture school. So I got to go to Harvard, take an architecture school between uh, high school and college. And it turned me on to architecture in a really big way. So I went from engineering to architecture, did that in college, love architecture, decided I was really more of a graphic designer, and then started my shop um, several years later, right? I mean, we've been around for 23 years, but um, we've had a, a wonderful career working with architects because we still love architecture. We like architects too. So yeah. those two things are very important. <laughs> Otherwise, we might have been talking to you um, if it weren't for that class selling out uh, at your your office at ILM or <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be awesome? Or, yeah. The road not taken. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's still back there in the fog. Exactly. So, um, tell us a little bit about, um, 
kind of how your agency is structured. We've had, of course, folks on the show who work for very large agencies. We've had people on the show who are solo operators and right. you've got a team. So tell us a little bit about your team and your, your choice to be kind of structured as you are. Yeah. You know, having, um, spent 23 years at this, I always expected that once you started a company, it would kind of, you just do what it does. And the amazing thing about running a company in this time is that you have to adjust your course every single day. So you're Mm -hmm. constantly, if if you were in a sailboat, you'd be tacking and turning all the time. So our team uh, right now is made up of dedicated teams for research and brand strategy. So we have full-time research associates, uh, five or six of those. We have full-time brand identity and uh, creative people on the design side. And then we've got a full team of web designers and developers. And obviously then you've got the support people, the account people, the, all the people that keep the wheels on the bus. So, so about how many people are you at at the moment? We have always liked 30 as a number. Okay. It works really yeah. well for us as yeah. a as a number. So we we pop up a little bit over that and people start to feel like it's becoming too bureaucratic. We go too far underneath that and then we start to feel pinched and people start complaining about overtime and those things. So yeah. 25 to 30 is a really great little number. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. Um, let's go back. I mean, we teased it a little bit before at the start of the show, but obviously you've spelled the name of your agency phonetically based on your last name and it's yeah. a little bit different. So tell us about your thoughts there. Well, I, um, my dad played football for university of Missouri, Mizzou. Um, and all of his football buddies called him Toki. And so it was just the name. My, I grew up, I didn't know my dad's first name until I was like 15. <laughs> I, everybody called him Toki, including my mom. So uh, it made sense in my family. We all call each other Toki. Hey, Toki, how you doing? So uh, it made sense to just call the company Toki. It's actually named after my dad, not me. Oh, so, that's awesome. Very cool. Was, was that... Um was that the name of it right out of the gates? Right out of the gate. Oh, yeah. Nice. Even when I was I was working for another company and I had this little secret freelance thing on the side, I still had Toki Branding and Design before I actually formed it. So I've got stuff in award annuals from like five years before I actually had a company. Oh, nice. Yeah. Under and Toki. Was, was all of that initial work, all that freelance work, was it mostly architecture? Um. You know, not really. A lot of it was I did a lot of work for punk rock bands back then. Mm. And I I got in this um, cool book that was edited by Joseph Heller of the New York Times oh, yeah. called That's Entertainment. So in there and I'm like at this time, I'm like 25. So I've got two guitars I designed for this band and I've got oh, a nice. couple of tapes that I designed, cassette tapes. So it was, <laughs> it was very, it was a heady time. You see kids, the there used to scene. be music on these tapes that there would go from be. one side to the other. That's right. right. It was very exciting. <laughs> pre, pre-compact disc. Um, so talk to us a little bit about your decision to focus in the the architecture branding space, and yeah, there, there are uh, you know other many other industries that you could have <laughs> taken the path with, especially right. with your with your punk rock roots. Right. So why? I mean, obviously you had a touch in that, but to specialize, you know, it, that's a that's a big question for a lot of design and marketing firms. Like, should we specialize in a client type or not? Yeah, um, I will tell you that this is one of the the main things that we are focused on as a company and have mm-hmm. been. And our evolution as a company has been this gradual narrowing of uh, who we do our work for, the kinds of work that we do, while we're expanding the depth within that. So we've gone from a very sort of a uh, a very shallow but wide pool with mm. where we do we are basically try to be a generalist firm in a uh you know a secondary market like St. Louis um and our goal was always to be the best design studio in St. Louis as we attained that and started to get our awards and things we realized that we were always going to be competing with the best design studio in Cincinnati or Chicago or Louisville or Kansas City or Indianapolis. And so there's no way to get out of that if you want to grow out of your market. Mm -hmm. So we 
have, or really over the last 14 years, we have narrowed our focus and been very deliberate about choosing a handful of uh, verticals that our team is interested in. Hospitality, working for hotels, Mm -hmm. resorts, destinations, doing some city branding, um, working for real estate developments, big towers. We just were, we've been working on uh, a wonderful project by Jeannie Gang in St. Louis, this spectacular building. And we were selected to do the marketing and branding for that. Um, Working on architecture and then working on arts and culture. So we do museums like the Phillips collection and, um, you know, things all over the country. So that's it. We really try to stick to that. And that has helped us go into other markets. So we can all of a sudden we've been able to jump and go to New York city. We go to DC and we can go to Denver and the other places we are. So some of those feel at least, um, maybe not parallel to architecture, but at least closely related, right. You know, because you're, you're marketing a building or you're marketing the the folks who design the building. That's exactly right. So it all kind of ties together very tightly. That's exactly right. And that unifying philosophy is something we spent a lot of time talking about, Mm. you know, our, Everything that we do in our in our uh, in our little business is around how we can improve the life of a city, the beauty of a city, the engagement of the community in that city. And that is how we've structured what we do. That's front and center on our website. And it's it's something that we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about internally. Well, certainly this is an audience who I think probably for the large part understands brand and understands what branding's about. So yeah. I think we can probably skip all the the 101 level stuff. What is it really that you're looking at or how do you kind of slice apart brand differently or what's what's kind of your unique perspective to how you would help an architect understand what their brand is about? There was a there was an 18th century um a scientist uh, that we've all that I've always kind of liked, whose name was Carl Linnaeus, and he is the guy who came up with the taxonomy for species and genus and kingdoms. Oh, okay, so interesting. He, he looked at animals in a different way and said, "I think I can categorize these things and show them how there's a family structure." Um, and. We have done that for architects and and really looked very carefully at the way that architects talk about themselves and have tried to figure out what the classifications of the brand positioning is for those architects and have come up with 16 general positions um, and four broad purpose statements that all architects seem to somehow fall into. And we're we're very interested in trying to figure out where the flaws in this model are, right? Where are mm-hmm. the where are the people who are outside that model? Yeah, and what are they doing? And the and the folks who f- are outside of it is is it because they genuinely have a new perspective on architecture, or are they just combining things that maybe somebody else hasn't combined before? Yeah, and that has been the what we've done over the last four years or so is refine that model and that has become a an incredibly powerful tool that we use when we go into architecture firms to talk about who they are today and who they want to become in the future and we can show examples and show examples how their their competitors are arranged on that compass mm-hmm. and then take them through the exercises to show how they can position outside of their competitors. So I'd imagine that's like one part diagnostic. So you're trying to figure out where they are right now. Yeah. And then you're also saying, okay, where, where do you think you should be? Right. If we're right here, we're, we're technical, we're getting things done. We're doing, doing good work. Right. But do we want to be something bigger than that? Or is that really where we want to camp out? Yeah. Or if they're, and in some cases, um, some firms have a very different kind of a market position. If we look at some of the largest firms in in the world, uh, if you look closely at their purpose statements, they're almost identical. Mm. So for those companies, they're they're almost so big that they've become camouflaged with each other in terms of the way that they talk about themselves. Literally, yeah. the words that they use are almost exactly the same. So we come in and we say. 
there's an opportunity for you to try to do something more genuine to your strengths as opposed to just taking this very big picture view. Sometimes, so we're sometimes with small firms and medium firms, we're trying to make them look bigger, more, um, more uh, capable mm-hmm. in an area of uh, a lot of M&A activity that's happening. Sure. And in some cases, we're trying to take those big companies and make them feel more human. Mm-hmm. So leading a firm like Toki, um, you know, we've talked to a lot of CEOs and agency owners on the show. I'm curious for you kind of where you spend choose to spend most of your day. You know, it's easy for owners and CEOs to get caught up in the meetings and email and all the admin stuff. And, yeah. and some leaders are still able to get their hands dirty in design or in strategy or in something else. Right. Like where, right. where do you find most of your time goes and what are, what are some of your favorite things to focus on? Yeah. Um, Which may be two different things. <laughs> yeah, man. And it's, it, it, and it's tough because there's the stuff that got you into the profession and the stuff that you love to do. I love doing design. We have mm-hmm. this really cool project that's not actually in any of the categories. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity that I can't talk about because of non-disclosures. <laughs> but I'm having so much fun working with my team on it. Um and it's actually going to go to a public vote. They're going to come down with these two mm-hmm. ideas. Nice. One by us and one by another firm, and then they're going to put them out to the public vote. So ours may not get selected, but it's yeah. been a gasp. But the majority of my time as the executive of the company is trying to make sure that everybody, all the gears of the company are working as well as they can. So I've had to hand off over the years design, strategy, um, you know, all of the writing. So mm-hmm. I still get to do a lot of the upfront strategy when I work with my architecture clients. But if, if it's a non-architecture client, the rest of my team is doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're you're hanging on to those pieces specifically when it's the right. architecture clients. I'm, I'm the head of the architecture practice. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, any other fun or exciting projects we should know about? Anything recent stories or case studies you want to share you know, with us? We've We've been so lucky over the last several years that we've had um, several projects that have been really fun. I w- and I wish I, I'm two weeks away from being able to talk about this secret one that I was just mentioning. But we're doing a big project with an architecture firm in Dallas. Uh, they're headquartered in Dallas. And these these guys have been uh, just spectacular clients. They've done they've done everything right, and the people are wonderful. They're they're smart and they're relaxed and they're focused. And we've made huge strides in realigning them as a as a business and finding a new path for them and creating a a distinct position for them in the market that they didn't have before mm-hmm. all while just reemphasizing their strengths and I'm so proud of what we've done for this firm called Corgan um and I'm I just feel like everything that we've done for them has been just fantastic um and we're doing we did a, a book uh, a, a few years ago that was uh, about the effect of the cook stoves in sub the subcontinent of India and how all of these billions of cook stoves that these people are cooking on three times a day were affecting global climate in oh, Antarctica, really? the the death of the mangroves, the pushing back of wildlife around civilization, the degradation of the landscape and the water, all wow. because these people have to feed these cook stoves wood three times a day to cook their foods oh. and multiplied by three billion people, that pernicious, yeah. horrible thing has become a major problem for the world in terms of global warming and animal uh, diversity. And yeah. um, so really that fuel need at that level of scale yes, is what makes it so intense. One tiny yeah. primitive technology multiplied by billions mm-hmm. becomes a massive worldwide problem. Mm. And we did a book that was picked up by Oxford University Press and it was picked up by the Clinton Global Initiative and picked up by the, by the United Nations Cookstove Initiative because it helped, and I, I can't say I authored it, and I didn't do the photography for it, but we coordinated the writing and the editing mm-hmm. and the photography by Mark Katzman, this spectacular photographer, 
and all these things came together in a book that was just, I, it's still one of the highlights of what we've done in our shop because I felt like it was meaningful. Oh, that's really awesome. Um, I want to circle back um, to this project that we're not allowed to talk about yet because yeah. we're probably a couple months out from the show going live. Uh-huh. So listeners, if you get the following story, then we'll know it's live. And if we go on to the next section here, then you'll know I had to cut it out. Yeah, there you go. That's a good idea. <laughs> if you're willing to share this with me, because I'm, you've piqued my interest. Well, uh, okay. Since we, we have a time delay, um, I think I can talk about this. I'll, I'll pull the NDAs yeah, to make sure totally. that I'm not yeah. doing something illegal. We can totally we'll we'll this. scotch this. Right. Uh, if you hear a tone, beep, <laughs> then you know that we, we violated an NDA and I'm probably I'm in prison. I'm looking forward to using the sound effects just in case. <laughs> But even with that, I don't even know how I can, that they'll let me talk about it. Okay. I know it sucks. I'm so excited. This is, this is so weird. I'm sitting in a basement in Indianapolis. <laughs> this is the first I've been able to talk about it outside of the office. Shrouded, I feel like I'm in confession or shrouded something. Shrouded in mystery. You know, there's black walls and there's sound foam padding. and Right. <laughs> It's so weird. Yes. It's just you and me and this SD card. That's right. And the CIA <laughs> listening in on our phones. We should have a, you should have a show on all the weird stuff that people bring with them like that. <laughs> I have a guy in my office who travels with Diet Mountain Dew everywhere he goes, brings it into client meetings, takes right. them on the plane. They're hot. They're warm. <laughs> he still drinks Doesn't them. Care. He's just obsessed. Right. <laughs> That is awesome. Speaking of obsessed. Um, well, maybe we've already covered this, but do you have another proudest professional moment that you want to share with us? Well, um, in addition to uh, to the design studio, my wife and I are uh, real estate developers. So we have a, a, a wonderful little project that we've been doing for the last man, 20 years now in St. Louis, where there's this, there was an abandoned part of town that used to be the, what was called auto row in the forties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it fell into disrepair and then really abandonment. And, um, 20 years ago, we kind of stumbled on it through a variety of circumstances and ended up buying our first building for our studio down there. Mm. And over the last 20 years, we have turned it into the design district of St. Louis. Oh, very cool. So we've been able to bring in all of our friends in the design community. We've brought in photographers and videographers. So we've turned this thing that was, it wasn't even unsafe because there was no one there <laughs> into vacant. this thriving, <laughs> fun little part of town that's filled with cool restaurants and, and apartments and design studios and life. And it's thrilling and we're we're planning our our house down there we're going to build a mm. uh we're turning a, a big 7000 square foot warehouse into a house so it's going to be this oh wow great peewee's playhouse for <laughs> for us and our grandkids yeah we'll be able to get lost from one another yeah <laughs> well not that I want to do that but yes. honey are you here love you love you honey <laughs> somewhere um so did you like buy up a bunch of land there or this was just kind of over time kind of picking off one piece and doing the next. And yeah. Doing the we next. bought, we bought some, some of the buildings early on yeah. and every time we've had any money from the design practice, we just rolled it into more buildings. Yeah. So that's been uh, something that we've done for a long time and we have partners and we have, there's other people in the neighborhood who are doing the same thing. And all yeah, of a sudden that's awesome. now people are like, Oh, this is, I can afford a building down here. So if you're a designer and you've got a design studio, it's a place where you can own your future and not pay mm-hmm. rent. So it's become an attractive area for for people in our profession who a lot of the time don't have, you know, we don't have pensions. Right. We don't have long-term savings. But, man, if you can own your building where your design studio is, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's a really cool thing. So that's – we're very happy about that. Um. Shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, obviously coming through the architecture door, um, maybe maybe you have a different view on this, but I'm I'm curious who some of your design heroes were as you came up in the industry, or maybe if you have anybody that you really admire currently. Man, you know, there's a list that's so long. I remember the first the first guy that I remember ever sort of 
having my mind blown by is uh, Kit Henricks from mm-hmm. San Francisco, who was at the time I discovered him a partner in his company, Johnson Peterson Henricks Shakery, and later became a, a partner in Pentagram before he uh, and his and his wife, Linda, were both partners in Pentagram. And then they spun out and formed Hendricks Design. Mm-hmm. And Kit, you know, he's he's kind of out of favor now because he's definitely in the 80s and early 90s kind of. That was his time when he was the best. But, man, he in the late 70s invented a whole different way of storytelling than graphic design had ever done before he took the old Robert Miles Runyon kind of uh, narrative and exploded it into parts mm-hmm. and then used those parts to create these wonderful compositions with wonderfully dynamic symmetry and and he told the story through little atomized bits of information that accrued to a story and were highly visual rather than a, a narrative that then often had a parallel path photograph, you know, full page photograph next sure. to it. It was the old magazine design. And Hendricks invented this storytelling model that has now it's just a part of the the furniture of, of the life of a graphic designer. You're like, oh, yeah, I could sprinkle these things on a page and yeah. do a bunch of captions. But that innovation was, to me, mind-blowing because it, you, it made you realize that we as, as designers had authority over the way a story was told instead of saying, give me the narrative and I'll figure out how to make it attractive. Yeah. And that having that um, authority over the narrative has been sort of the the way that we've tried to run our studio. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, anybody else that you want to share with us, man, you know, I, I spent so much time looking at, at great architects and, uh, and dance and all all the good designers are dirty snowballs, man. We've got so much (laughs) grit and grass and mud in us. And, the the people that I admire the most are they're curious people. They're always curious. They're always talking to other people. Um, and so the people that I like, guys like Joseph Heller, guys like Woody Pirtle, guys, uh, you know, current designers that I look at. I mean, you know, the Duffy guys are spectacular. Yeah. They they all they never lose their curiosity. Mm-hmm. They never lose their their. Uh, ability to invent themselves and control their environment. Those are the people I love. That's awesome. Great answer. Um, Of course, maybe we've touched on this a little bit with the, the architecture or the real estate development stuff, but um, you know, sort of the theme of the show here is that we designers are an obsessive lot, right? We we get into something and we really dig in deep when we get into it. I'm curious what you find that you are most obsessed with right now. Um, One of the things that, that we are obsessed with in our office right now is how can a small regional company grow Mm -hmm. and thrive in the long term in a United States economy that seems to be pushing more toward the coast all the time. Right. Yeah. We have, we literally have clients that we've met with. Um, I went to a a meeting with an architecture firm in New York city. Uh, and we had entered a, 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 a cattle call. Mm-hmm. And we'd made it to the final two. Um, and I went, they flew us to New York City. And they, we were in this beautiful office above Times Square. We go into this room and we meet with all these guys. And there's this one guy at the end of the table. He doesn't say anything the whole time. He's just watching us in the suit mm-hmm. like, like an Al Pacino character. <laughs> and... I'm getting the mood here. Yeah. And so we go through this whole meeting and we're always kind of like dodging our eyes over to look at this guy and like, Mm -hmm. is he reacting at all? Is he, what's, is he the security guard? What's going on? And, and the meeting goes great. We're really, really happy. And at the end of the meeting, 
this guy leans forward and it's the chairman of the of this huge architecture company mm-hmm. and he and he looks at me and he kind of points his finger at me and he says why in the blank would I work with a firm from St. Louis mm-hmm. I, and being a firm from St. Louis uh, I should have said, because we know more about your business than anybody else. But I didn't. Yeah. I didn't say that because that's an egotistical kind of ass darn thing to say. Western sensibility got in your way. So instead, I, I rambled probably for five minutes and we lost the job. Yeah. But it stuck with me that mm-hmm. day. And so that knowing that there are people who say, if you're in the Midwest, You've done something wrong with your life. Yeah. So how then do you grow as a company in the cities that we're born in? All of these cities in the middle of the country that have great talent in them, how do they grow and how do they influence their profession and how do they get out of that? So our team, I mean, we talk about this. We go to happy hour on Friday nights and we're like, what are we going to do? So we're planning on an office in New York City this we're trying to get to have it open this year mm. in St. Louis it's a funny thing in Kansas City if you're if you're not from Kansas City they don't want to work with you right if you're from if you're in Denver nobody's from Denver so they'll work with anybody <laughs> if you're in St. Louis St. Louis companies assume that if you're in St. Louis, you're probably not very good. So they want to work with people from New York. Interesting. And so all of these cities have these different kind of membership requirements for whether you're in or out. We have a successful little office in Denver. We've got a great little office in Boston. We need an office in New York to legitimize ourselves to our St. Louis clients. That's ridiculous, but it's the truth. Okay. I want to come back to your other offices. Um, but I experienced this as well with my agency where we would do work on the West coast. And for some reason that was no problem. And we'd go two hours down the street to Cincinnati and they would say, we loved you guys, but I think we're going to work with the guys down the street. And I would, I literally asked one of these clients, did we just lose out to a two hour drive? Right. (laughs) Because we literally can be there same morning. Right. We, it's not any different. You want to have a 10 AM meeting? I'll be there. Right. And I'll be back home by lunch. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of wild. Um, so what, uh, so over the lifespan of Toki, when did you decide to open offices in Denver and Boston? And what was this sort of thing, the driver of that, or was that more opportunistic and that you had talent, the one to be there? Or what did, what did that look like for yeah, you? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that meeting in Times Square was definitely a crack. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's nothing like a really good rejection to piss you off enough that it lights a fire. <laughs> drives you to action. It drives you to action. <laughs> right. Um, and so we, I, we came back from that meeting angry because we'd already, you know, we'd done work for HOK at this point. We'd yeah. won a, a, a perfect score in the MCA competition at SMPS the year before. We were like, we got this. We yeah. know how to do this stuff. And it, it didn't work. It, yeah. And it didn't work in New York City. And they slapped us back down to the Midwest. Mm, so yeah. we were like, okay. Our what we've learned is we can't be the best design studio in St. Louis. We can't. That's not enough. We've got to get away from that. So, yeah, uh, a woman on our team, a valuable member, wanted to move home to her family in Boston. We said, let's use that as an excuse to open an office. We planned for a long time to go to Denver, researched the opportunities where we were strong, and we ended up doing. We've done four or five architecture clients there, but we also did the Denver Museum of Science and Nature, and we've had a healthcare client out of Denver. So we, we've got a diverse client base that we've been able to grow in Denver, which is very exciting. Nice. Um, but we've got to figure out how to get the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that New York thing is is a, it's like something I want to have in place to make sure that long in the long term that we've got a, a future that we can sustain. 
And yet there's this paradox too of, you know, doing business today in 2020, that there are plenty of freelancers and contractors out there who are probably listening to this part of the conversation and laughing a little bit because they're like, I haven't met 80% of my clients in person. I'm in Sheboygan or I'm in wherever. Right. And it's fine because I love it here and I do work virtually and I don't, I don't need to see people in person. You know, do you think what we're talking about that you and I have both dealt with as agency principles, is that going to persist for another 10 or 20 years? Or do you see there just being these two worlds that you either live in the world where you've got to have a physical presence or you live in the world where you don't. Right. And that, uh, you know, as a 60 year old guy, I have a very, I have a perspective that is based on 40 years of doing this work of liking to be across the desk from somebody. Mm-hmm. And I, my business is based on reading the subtle cues that come that, you know, flash across a face yeah. at the other side of the table and then being able to say, okay, let's stop. You just, you're thinking something and mm. I don't know what it is. Let's dive into that. Let's yeah. really talk about that. And I, I can't do that on the phone. I can't mm. do that on a conference call or even a video conference call. Um, it's a fact of our life and gosh knows, I mean, at this point we may have to deal with it with coronavirus. Your listeners, if we'll know if we've, if we're all going to be on video conference for the rest of our existence or not, uh, from our, you know, sequestered living rooms. I hope that in the, that in the future, the people that I work with, the people that I'm going to be, you know, handing my company off to in the Mm -hmm. next few years are going to, have the same ability to travel and yeah. and enjoy people face to face. Outsourcing to me is no way to build community. Mm-hmm. I I believe in people rubbing up against people in co-working spaces and the sparks that come from steel hitting flint and you you're not you're not going to get that if you are too far apart. That's my belief. Prove me wrong. Love it. Well, you, we're here in the Granite City coming out of you. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's where it comes from. And I'm nice. not cussing. That's the Granite City side. <laughs> You've done a great job of showing restraint so far. <laughs> I have. I didn't hit breakfast. <laughs> Um, so with all the cool things that you've worked on in the past and, you know, this, this really cool thing that we may or may not have talked about earlier, depending on where we are in the, (laughs) in the publishing cycle. (laughs) Right. Um, do you have any dream projects that you'd still like to do? Uh, any particular other industries or types of things that you haven't worked on that you'd like to dig into at some point? Yeah, I, I would love to have the excuse to do a really a really important job for um, a, a great architecture or builder. I love doing those kinds of, of things. Mm-hmm. We had a project uh, that we did for a, a firm. I won't, I won't say who, and they were really desperate. They had a real problem they had to solve and they, they hired us to do it. And it's, it, it worked for them. The company is now stable. They've got a backlog. Mm-hmm. Um, That's they awesome. were able to really turn things around. I love working with clients who don't need us to decorate. They need us to put out the fire, mm-hmm. right? They're not just saying our couches are a little old. Let's replace the fabric. But they're saying, oh, my God, come and save us. <laughs> and I love those clients. Um, so I think doing that is is when we can really help companies survive and thrive, that's mm-hmm. really fulfilling as, as much as it's great to come up with a new logo or a new campaign or a, a poster, helping somebody keep their job and keep their company alive. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. I think my, my pet word has always been impact. Right. Uh, which good, is just, you know, the way that I describe feeling like you have moved the needle for somebody yeah. that it's not just, we're not just showing off. We're not just making it prettier. Yeah. You know, we're actually impacting somebody's business, their that's life, exactly their future right. or their audience, their, their community. Yeah. That's it, man. That's the way to go. So it turns out maybe not every project is perfect and every client is maybe not, uh, 
you know, always the easiest conversation. Every meeting doesn't go perfectly smoothly. What do you do when you get either, you know, a rough spot with a client or maybe get stuck creatively? What are some of the tactics and strategies that you use to get yourself out of that space? I drink a lot of Mountain Dew. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I, I, but um, we all have our drugs. Um and some everybody knows they have their thing that helps them get out of those those stuck spots. Yeah, and having uh, having knowing that my brain, if I get in that place where I'm panicked, if I just say, "You've been here before," just keep working the problem, and the fog will clear, mm-hmm. and you'll figure it out. And I have. At this point in my life, I know that my brain will come through if I just keep working the problem. Yeah. And so it's it's like a moment of taking a deep breath and saying, I am falling in the from the airplane. I don't have a parachute. What am I going to do? And then you start to figure out how to build a parachute out of the stuff that you have and you're wearing. And all of a sudden you're like, I made it. I'm on the ground. I hope I never have to do that again. But, you know, it was kind of fun. It was kind of thrilling. Do you find that you hammer away at the problem on the way down using your metaphor? Or do you like take a little mental break on the way down? No. And then, yeah. So I'm, you're just staying with it the whole I, time. I'm, I cannot take that mental break. I wish I could. I don't have that gene. Mm. My gene is cancel everything, drink a lot of Mountain Dew, stay up all night for, you know, 10 nights in a row, mm-hmm. and then show up uh, the morning of the meeting. And somehow it's like, perfect and then you go home and you say i'm taking the next two days off (laughs) and you recover the extended crash and then yeah you have to get your insulin back up so (laughs) gotta pull up that parachute for next time (laughs) that's exactly right you can't do it over and over yeah because it's horrifying but hope you know most projects don't they don't end up like that right it's just yeah but solving them man if you can hear that little combination lock click into place and you're like oh there it is you little <laughs> rascal you didn't look yeah, at you gotcha. editing yourself again i did so good. sorry about i can that. see it in your eye <laughs> see i can't do that when i've got somebody on skype i can't tell when they're <laughs> when they're self-editing themselves but it's a lot easier in person that's right Hey, I, I think a lot of us are, um, you know, I was talking to somebody just last week and they were like, do you, like, when you look at the world around you, do you see things differently than other people do? And I think designers can't help that. Like every, every font choice, every typeface, every color, everything. And some things are just amazing that you see like that. And other things are kind of a curse, but I'm curious if there's anything like, especially like trend wise or things that you've seen recently that just kind of drive you crazy. Um, yeah. I mean, I I think the, the 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 biggest thing that drives me crazy is um we have in America because of because of the rapidity with which trends can spread across the internet. Yeah. We get waves of trends from all over the world that hit us uh every you know every three or four days so wolf olens publishes some brand new brand identity and it's crazy and weird in some way Mm -hmm. uh and all of a sudden you've got a wave of people who are like oh that's a great solution i'm gonna do that do a crazy weird ugly thing that that right right, exactly to emulate or saffron or sagmeister or name your guy who does and it does it a lot of time it's 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 from a design agency you've never heard before, but they had a really good idea. Mm. They solved the problem in a unique way, a stylistic way that you've never heard. And then all of a sudden you've got 15 people who are knocking it off. And by the next award show, that little agency <laughs> looks like they're ripping somebody else off. Right. We have lost regional flavor in the country. Totally. Yeah. We used to have, when you went to Knoxville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. 
Knoxville felt like Knoxville, right? Mm -hmm. Man, you could tell a Knoxville poster from a Nashville poster. And you could tell a Louisville designer from a Kansas City designer. Yeah. Because or, those trends didn't make it out of that they town. They didn't make it out of the part. town. Yeah. That's exactly right. And and all of these cities had their own flavor. St. Louis was different from from New Orleans, but it was also different from Minneapolis. And I remember when Minneapolis became a hot design studio with Fallon McElligot Rice, mm -hmm. and they started to do the whole series of ads that Tom McElligot was writing. And they started to use Futura Extra Bold Condensed on all the, And it was just his signature typeface. He just used yeah. it on everything. And all of a sudden, everybody in the country was using Futura Extra Bold Condensed for all their headlines. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of trends, that took like two years. And now that's like a week. Right. So it's a couple of shots on dribble and it's or Instagram exactly right. or whatever. And then everybody's following and everybody's the same thing. doing it. And now we're not only losing that flavor nationally, but we're absorbing international trends mm -hmm. and we're watching this mass hom homogenization of design. And I go back to the Ken Hendricks story and say, how do we tell a story that's genuinely different, not just surface different, but is is different in its core, in its root? Maybe that's technology. Maybe it's a different kind of, of photo art direction or illustration art direction. We've lost so much in terms of illustration quality in many cases because we need to turn things around in, in two or three days, sometimes an afternoon. Right. If you're doing editorial design or editorial illustration for the New York Times or the Washington Post, you're doing it in, in four or five hours and getting it to yeah. them and saying, let me know if, if you're going to use it. Yeah. If you're lucky, you've got if you're lucky. <laughs> four right. or five hours. So the rapidity means all of our design executions are relatively sketch-like now. There's nobody like Keono Craft who was doing these elaborate sort of tapestries of, of illustration. So things have been lost in the service to speed, in the service to worldwide communication that I mourn. I, when I come to Indianapolis, I don't want it to feel like St. Louis. Yeah, I don't want to drive right. down the street and see the same auto parts store and the McDonald's and the Chick-fil-A and all. It, right. And I'm like, oh, I know this street. I've been on this street in every city I've been in in, the, in America. Regionalism is a good thing. How do we get back to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Do you think it's more about um, paying less attention to the web and or maybe Absolutely, less yes. attention to other designers on the web and maybe more attention to other things that are of inspiration? Like where where would you go for inspiration to look for things outside of looking at what your peers are doing? I think you have to look at your obsessions, mm -hmm. right? If And I've been a nerdy, um, I used to get, I firmly believe that the things that you do best as an adult are the things that you get made fun of in sixth grade. Yeah. I was made fun of for doing in-depth studies by all of my friends. Oh, Eric, you always give me an in-depth study. Now I get paid for doing in-depth studies. You know, that's, <laughs> right. it's just the way the world works. And I am obsessed with, with the categorization of things. So I'm going to bring that perspective to my practice. Mm -hmm. I don't need to look at anybody else because this is clothing that I was born to wear. So mm. uh, I don't I don't need to look for somebody to say, "Ooh, here's the Pantone color of the year. I could care less. That to me is the worst kind of trend making. Yeah. Imposing a trend on a country. Why the hell would you want to follow <laughs> right. that? So instead, let's dig into our obsessions. And if you like Thai food and you want to cook Thai food at home and you go to your graphic design studio, how do you learn from your obsession from Thai food? If I learned from my obsession from, of architecture with architecture, I learned from my obsession with maps in books. I mm -hmm. mean, I have all these weird little quirky things and they all make it into the gumbo that is my design practice. That's awesome. Um, I feel like you've had a lot of good advice throughout the interview here, but I'm curious if you have either a favorite piece of advice that you've received that you'd like to share with our audience or maybe a favorite piece of advice that you'd like to pass along to your team members. Um, I, 
I remember reading a, uh, a book by um, the columnist David Brooks, who's I'm not politically aligned with, but I'm sort of philosophically aligned with. Uh, and he had this this idea of four commitments, and those are to your spouse, mm-hmm. to your philosophy, in his case, religion, yeah. to your community, and to your vocation. Mm. And those four commitments, if you can make your life around those four things, it tends to make you more fulfilled. And for me, and by extension, my studio, our commitments are to building communities in cities so that they're happier. And that works for my design practice, for my bringing back of this weird little neighborhood, Mm -hmm. for this goofy little pizza parlor I own in a funky little part of town. (laughs) All of those things help me build relationships and communities within my little city. So that's what I'm obsessed with. Love it. Um, so before we let you go, I'm curious if you have any, uh, anything you'd like to ask of our audience or any, any encouragements you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh man, I think to thine own self be true, right? Figure out what you're obsessed with and stay curious. I, I think so many people, especially designers, at some point in their career, they realize that design can be a very short-term career. It's like being a figure skater mm-hmm. and you can age out of it younger than a lot of professions. Right. My brother's a doctor. He'll be a doctor until he's 80. I have a lot of design friends, good, talented friends who've left the profession before they're 50, 55. Yeah. Why? Right. Some of them just get burned out on design and that's a weird thing. We have to stay curious. I mean, your ability, what you've done is you've created this wonderful vehicle with your podcast to constantly learn from other people Sure, across a table or across a, um, a network. But those kinds of conversations are so important. Have a salon, you know, get your friends over for something and say, tonight we're going to fight about the role of capitalism in artwork, whatever, and create a fist fight, get a good (laughs) fist fight going and see, see where it goes. Let's stay curious, man. It's so uncurious. People are the worst. They're so boring. Right. The first rule of design fight club is we don't talk about design. Eric, this has been a blast. So unofficially, guys, we are about to wrap on this conversation. And the unofficial part, too, is going to be on my other show that I don't talk a whole lot about on this podcast, but it's PSM.show. So that will air probably sometime in June. So a little bit after this one. So keep an eye out for PSM.show. If you enjoyed hearing from Eric, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the marketing and branding side of architecture on that one. But for today, Eric... Eric, we're going to let you go. And uh, before we sign off here, tell us where all of our listeners can connect with you and find Toki online. Um, I'm at TOKY.com and um, look for Eric Tolke, T-H-O-E-L-K-E on Facebook. Um, and you'll hear way too much about my politics. <laughs> well, Eric, thank you for chatting today. And thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, kids, that's episode number 139 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com. And if you haven't already while you're there, add your email address to our newsletter. I'll update you on some of my favorite new episodes and some cool things I find in my daily obsessions. Of course, all the links are over at obsessedshow.com to all the places you can find this show, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Spotify. So no matter where you find your podcasts, chances are you can listen to Obsessed Show from there. Just head over to obsessedshow.com. The Obsessed Show is produced by yours truly, Josh Miles. To have me speak or MC at your next event, head over to joshmiles.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.